Well, let's turn to 1 John. The last chapter, chapter 5, begin reading at verse 18. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. We've been examining this last little phrase, very important. Uh, Obviously, it's important that John would end up his letter by tacking that on the end. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. And what we're seeking to do is take that exhortation and apply it to our contemporary situation here in the 21st century. So far, we've looked at the idol of nature, the idol of covetousness or greed, the idol of power, and now we're looking at the idol of religion, which often can get tied in with the idol of power. We'll see that, I think, clearly today. Now, these are not what we normally think of as idols. You know, we think of some visible idol that you can set on the mantle and bow down to. But these are what Ezekiel calls idols of the heart, which are far more prevalent and more deceptive, subtle, and something that we constantly need to be on guard against, idols of the heart. We said that idolatry could be defined as giving ourselves to a person, idea, or thing that displaces God as central in your life. Anything that displaces God is going to be an idol. So we need to be constantly on guard for these type of things trying to come in, creep into our lives. And even religion, or I should say especially religion, can be a substitute for trusting in the true and living God. Now you see that clearly in the various non-Christian religions of the world. They're idolatry. But what we want to do today is zero in on the Christian religion. Now I've done this the last two times I spoke. We've looked at the Jewish system of worship that became not only idolatrous, but became an idol itself. That is, people were trusting in the religion instead of trusting in God. You see it clearly with the Pharisees, doing incredibly evil things, and yet keeping their ceremonies, being very meticulous about the the ceremonies and not going against this particular ritual or ceremony. It was an idol. You saw it in the Old Testament where they had incorporated such things as as ritual prostitution and child sacrifice right into their religion, and yet they were trusting in the fact that they had the temple and the rituals and everything, and that God was with them. God says, I hate your your solemn assemblies. Why? Because they'd turned into an idol. So, you saw this, we we looked at it in terms of the... uh, the uh, Jewish system. And then we went on to see how in the New Testament times the early church had to deal with both the idolatrous Jewish system of worship 
and the Roman religious system centered in the worship of Caesar. It was another idolatrous religion. And uh, the early church had to deal with both of those. So when John said, little children, guard yourselves from idols, he was, I think, at least partly warning against going back to the shadows of the Jewish system or giving in to the pressure of the Roman state religion that uh, centered on emperor worship. Now, that's what got the Christians killed. They wouldn't bow down to Caesar as Lord. They were good citizens. They were probably some of the best citizens in the Roman Empire. But they wouldn't do that thing. They wouldn't go along with that idolatry. And consequently, they were martyred, killed by the thousands. They were seeking to do what Jesus said. They were seeking to render unto Caesar, unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but unto God the things that are God. And we all need to constantly bear that phrase in mind. It's not something just for back in the first century. It's right now present today in our, in our lives here in the United States. Well, we saw that for the first 300 years, I'm talking about the, those of us that have looked at this in the last few times I've spoken, we saw that in the first 300 years of its existence, the church was persecuted first by the Jewish leaders and then in an even greater measure by the Roman government. But, as we saw last time, that all changed in the time of Constantine. In 312 A.D., Constantine had a religious experience that changed the course of Christianity even to our day. We looked at that a little bit last time, a little bit of his supposed conversion. And I think if you investigate it, you'd have to say that it was doubtful whether he was truly converted. But he certainly sought to incorporate Christianity into the existing idol of religion that he already had. I mean, he was the emperor. He was the center of worship in the Roman Empire. And he decided he was going to incorporate this new religion. It wasn't new, really. I mean, it had been around for 300 years. But the point was that he was going to incorporate this into what he considered to be religion. Now, he did stop the persecution. And the persecution had been terrible for 300 years. I mean, when you read about some of the things that were done to the Christians by Nero and uh, some of these other emperors, it, it's unbelievable. And he did stop that. And it seemed like he was desiring to put the state on the side of the church, the state uh, government, the, the, uh, all the institutions of the state. He started building uh, Christian buildings you know, places of worship, so-called, did a lot of things that made uh, people think this is this is good. We're, we're thankful for this, and they would, we would be thankful too if we'd been in that 300-year uh, period of persecution and martyrdom. We would be thankful for that to stop. And there were very positive aspects to the change that came about under Constantine. But there were also some very tragic and long-lasting negative effects. 
In a few years, Christianity was made the official state religion, and all other religions were outlawed and persecuted. Even forms of Christianity that deviated from the established state-sponsored version were condemned, and the power of the state was there to enforce orthodoxy, or what it considered orthodoxy, and punish heretics and unbelievers. New Covenant Christianity, the real thing that we read about in the New Testament, was never meant to be a persecuting world power. And what was produced by this Constantinian shift, some people call it, what was produced by this was a form of Christianity that was an idol. The thing we're talking about. Now, there's all kinds of idols of religion. And there's all forms of that even in the, under the banner of Christianity. But we're zeroing in on this one thing here that happened in the time of Constantine. That's what I want us to get a hold of because it is still affecting us today. Eventually, through this merging of state and church, the whole definition of what the church is and what a Christian is was radically altered in the eyes of many people. Instead of the church being the gathering of true Christians, that's what the church is, it's the gathering of true Christians, people have been changed in their heart and lives, you had what has been called Christendom developing. Christendom is, the earth, is an earthly political kingdom uniting all the people in that land, in the land, under the church's teaching. Christendom. Just as in the Old Testament, a Jewish person could be part of Israel by taking part in the outward trappings of Judaism, even so, a person could be part of this system, this Christendom, without ever really knowing the Lord. You just had to keep the outward forms, the ceremonies, the structure, what the state was telling you about religion, this, the state's religious requirements. This is not New Testament, New Covenant Christianity. And this redefinition of Christianity brought about incredible hardship and evil through the next 1,500 years. Instead of a loving relationship with the living God, for many people Christianity was a state-established institution that they were born into. That's what it was. You didn't have to be born again, you just had to be born and that's not Christianity. In fact, the concept of a church made up of people who, was tra who were transformed by the Holy Spirit was often viewed as a heresy. The true people of God who sought to live holy lives by the power of God were very often a persecuted minority. They viewed the situation very similar to the time before Constantine. They were persecuted then. They were persecuted after the time of Constantine. But now the, different, the big difference was that there were masses of people professing the name of Christ. That wasn't the case before Constantine because of the persecution. But now you had masses of people professing the name of Christ, most of which were not born again but had embraced this idol of religion. P. 
People became part of this earthly church-state system because they were born in a certain locality. The emperor says, this is our religion. You're born in the empire. You're a Christian. Of course, it was to your advantage to embrace that system yourself because there were all kinds of, of perks. It was, it was very advantageous to make a profession of faith into that system. Of course, in many cases, you didn't even have to do that because you were baptized as a baby into the state's religion, Christian religion before you even knew what was happening. It didn't take any faith. You just were part of it because you were born. Well, that's some of what we covered thus far, and we want to kind of take up from there. I mentioned that another development from the time of Constantine that was that you had great power struggles as to who was in charge of this church-state system. Remember I said this idol of power that we looked at a month or two ago and the idol of religion often go together. Well, you had great power struggles developing in terms of who's in charge of this system. Sometimes the religious leader who who uh, through the Middle Ages was the Pope. Sometimes the religious leader tries to control the state. At other times you had the political leader trying to be in charge of the church. So by and large, this carnal church had lost its true power from God and was often under the control of men simply seeking worldly power. It wasn't long before you had holy wars fought for worldly reasons taking place in the name of Christ. So what I'd like to do this time is to give you some examples of this unbiblical Christian religious system, Christendom, brought forth that were brought forth throughout the centuries. As we go through this very brief, and I would say very simplistic in terms of I'm trying to cover 15 1,700 years of church history in the time we have here. Uh, as we go through this and see all the terrible things that were done in the name of Christ, uh, it's possible to get discouraged. And I don't want to do that at all. We have to remember that even in these times, God had his people. He had his 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal, the idol. Remember what Elijah was, when he took on the prophets of Baal back there in the Old Testament, he thought he was the only one taking a stand. And God said, no, I've got 7,000. You, you, know, you haven't seen them, but they're around. I've got 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. That's been the case throughout church history, throughout the history uh, since the time of Constantine. God has his people. Now, I, I will say this, that I think some of them remained in the system. They didn't, they didn't come out. Uh, but many others did not. They were not part of this whole thing we're looking at today. They were in small, simple, virtually unknown groups seeking to follow Christ in sincerity and truth. 
Now these are not the ones who make the history books. And they're not the ones who the new atheists and the college professors bring up because they like to bring up all the junk, all the wrong stuff that's been done in the name of Christ. But they were there living and proclaiming the gospel throughout these times. I'm reminded of a line from the German poet Tier Stegen, who wrote a poem called The, the Pilgrim Song. And the last line of that song, that poem says, Scarce seen, scarce heard, unreckoned, despised, defamed, unknown, or heard but by our singing, on children ever on. That's what the church has been through the centuries. The true church, scarce seen, scarce heard, unreckoned, despised, defamed, unknown, or heard but by our singing, on children, ever on. Well, now I'm going to give you some sad examples of what can happen when this idol of religion is embraced. And we're talking about a Christian, this, quote, Christian version of it. This state church religious system. By 800 A.D., you have the Pope, Leo III, crowning Charlemagne, the head of the new Roman Empire. The old Roman Empire had kind of died out. It had been taken over by uh, barbarians and, and uh, various groups. But the Pope and Charlemagne were going to try to reestablish a new Roman Empire. So they call it the Holy Roman Empire. So the Pope crowns him uh, as head of this new Holy Roman Empire. And there were some positive developments. And all these things, you know, it's not just totally clear that everything was evil. Uh, that's why people <laughs> didn't see through it a lot of times. There were some positive developments. Uh, for, for instance, he promoted learning and culture in some of the lands that he conquered. But in actuality, the Holy Roman Emperor was quite unholy in his understanding of Christianity. Charlemagne decreed the death penalty for those who refused to be baptized as Christians. Think of this now. This Holy Roman Emperor mandates the death penalty for anyone who refuses to submit to Christian baptism. This is a travesty of the teachings of Christ. Yeah. Totally opposite of, of true Christianity. But it was a religious system of the day and many people viewed it as Christianity. As I pointed out last time, idols are hard to identify after they've become part of the society for a time. Now that should speak to us right now today. We need to be careful. We need to be cautious because idols are hard to identify. This, this was the system. This is what looked good on the surface. This is what people were saying was right. The emperor and the pope, this is the right, right way to go. Now I think true Christian realized in the midst of that, something like that, that you could not compel Christian conversion because you can't compel love. True Christianity is love of God. You can't compel that. 
So you can't compare. You cannot baptize somebody by force and make them a Christian. You can make them outwardly conform to a religious system, which was what was happening there. Throughout the Middle Ages, you had this massive religious system, Christendom, using persecution, banishment, torture, and the killing of heretics to accomplish its purposes. And often, the so-called heretics were true Christians. What you had was Christians being killed in the name of Christ. Not, this, should, this didn't surprise God's true people because Jesus had said long before this, an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that they're offering service to God. Instead of the meekness and gentleness of Christ, you had these great power struggles between the emperors and the heads of the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope, over who was in charge of this so-called Christian state. I'm just picking out a few examples. One that uh, comes to mind that uh, is fairly well known took place in 1077. Pope Gregory VII had issued a decree which set forth some of his claims as head of the Roman Catholic Church. I just want to read you some of these claims. This is Pope Gregory VI. He says, quote, the, Ro the Roman pontiff, that's another name for the pope, the Roman pontiff is alone to be called universal. That means I'm in charge of everything. And only I, only I can be called universal. All princes should kiss his feet and his alone. He may de depose emperors. He's saying, I... I have such power, such authority, that I can depose any emperor any time. He may depose emperors. He himself, that is the Pope, can be judged by no man. The Roman Church has never erred, nor, according to Scripture, ever will err. Can't be wrong. No one can be reckoned a Catholic, that is, part of the... the established church, the, the only thing that he would recognize as true Christianity. No one can be reckoned a Catholic who does not agree with the Roman church. He, that is the Pope, may absolve the subjects of wicked rulers from their allegiance. He can just say, that ruler's wicked, you don't have to obey him. Well, you can see why a ruler would have some problems with these type of claims, can't you? I mean, to, to say that I'm in charge of you and I can depose you anytime you, I want to, and that you have to kiss my feet and mine alone, these, these are problems for a ruler. So, the leader of the Holy Roman Empire at that time, Henry IV, said he was not going to obey the Pope this had to do especially in relationship to installing bishops throughout his empire. If you want to read about this, it's called the Investiture Controversy. But I'm just giving you the, just a brief uh, 
synopsis here of what happened. So the, the emperor says, I'm not going to obey the pope. The pope says, you have to obey me. So the pope excommunicates Henry and deposes him as the monarch. He says, you're not in charge of the Holy Roman Empire anymore. Well, that had such an effect on Henry, just to show you the power the power that the Pope had at this time. Henry stands for three days, from morning till evening, barefoot in the snow outside of the Pope's castle. Yes, the Pope had a castle. Stands for three days in the snow to ask forgiveness. But this supposed humiliation of Henry was itself a power play which had nothing to do with real repentance or faith in Christ. This was all a matter of power and who's going to be in charge and who's recognized in the, uh, in the power structure. Nothing to do with real repentance or faith in Christ. In reality, both the emperor and the pope were ruthless, proud people enamored with power. And this is just one of hundreds of examples of this struggle for power between a worldly church and worldly rulers over who is going to be in charge of this, this system of Christendom, this state church religious system in the Middle Ages. Meanwhile, God's true people, Christ's true followers, were being condemned by the church and turned over to the state for persecution and many times execution. So, let's fast forward a little bit to the time of the Reformation. Surely things are better under the Reformers. Well, I would say in some ways they were. But sad to say, there was still much intolerance and persecution because of this view of having a state church that came in at the time of Constantine. The Reformers left some things behind in, in their efforts at reforming the church, but they didn't leave that behind. The sword of the state was to be used to advance Christianity and suppress heresy. They still believed that. This didn't change with the Reformers. They too accepted the idea that the church was all of those who lived in a Christianized state. Now, it seems that some of the Reformers were initially against persecution and the use of the sword to advance the cause of Christ, but they accepted the Constantinian view once they were in, power, in positions of power themselves. The question then became, how should, the state, how should this state power be used? That was a question that the Reformers had to face in trying to understand how a supposedly Christian state should conduct itself, the Reformers, like the Roman Catholic Church, seemed to overlook the radical teaching of the spiritual kingdom of Christ. They just they missed it. The spiritual kingdom of Christ, and instead looked back to the old covenant Jewish theocracy, that system that was set up back in Old Testament times, the Old Covenant. Infants were baptized into the state church like infants, infants had been circumcised as part of the nation of Israel. Moreover, 
the Old Covenant death penalty for sins like blasphemy, heresy, and apostasy were brought forward into the church. They didn't go by the New Testament. They went by the Old Testament to see how this church-state system should conduct itself. For instance, heretics were to be executed. Think of this. We're talking about the Reformers. It should be a sobering thought for us here this morning to realize that gatherings like ours would have been persecuted and you and I possibly executed by both the Roman Catholic religious system and the religious system embraced by the Reformers. Now, in many areas we should be thankful for the Reformers, especially in their emphasis on justification by faith. But the position they took related to this church-state system really does not fit justification by faith. And as you read their writings, you see, you see there's a tension. How do I fit this and this? They came out of the Roman church, especially in this area of justification by faith. They said they, they've got this wrong. This is the true gospel. But they didn't leave behind the church-state system. It was always causing a tension. How do we reconcile these two? Well, you can't. Let me just give you an example from the Reformers. Any preaching or gathering that was not authorized by the state church was prohibited by the Reformers. Luther said that unauthorized preachers and gatherings, quote, are in no case to be tolerated. They are the thieves and murderers of whom Christ spoke in John 7. And a citizen is obligated, if and when such an unauthorized preacher comes to him, before he listens to him or let him teach, to inform his civil magistrate, as well as the pastor of his parish, um, he's, he's supposed to inform the, the civil magistrate and his pastor, whose parisher, par, parishioner he is, they must neither be tolerated or listened to. Now, now listen to this. They must neither be tolerated or listened to even though they seek to teach the pure gospel. That's incredible. Because they're not part of this system. Do not listen to them. Do not tolerate them. Even if they seek to teach the pure gospel. If he refuses to stop, that is, to stop this type of unauthorized preaching, then let the magistrate consign the scamp to the hands of the proper ma master. Supposed to consign him to the proper master, whose name is Meister Hans. Now, who's Meister Hans? Meister Hans was a euphemism for the hangman. Now, I, I'm sure in his clearer moments, Luther knew better. But his endorsement of this idol of the Constantine church-state system clouded his vision. And this is what idols do. They make it so you can't see things clearly. Let's jump over to the Reformation in England. I'm just, you know, 
Just picking out pieces here and there. The Reformation in England, which got off to a terrible start anyway with Henry VIII declaring himself the head of the Church of England instead of the Pope because he wanted to divorce his wife. That's not a good start for a Reformation. Well, anyway, his son, King Edward VI, was a Protestant, okay? So we're talking about a Protestant uh, in the time of the Reformation in England. They controlled the state church at that time, so Roman Catholicism was persecuted. But so were other groups that disagreed with the Church of England. So, for example, if you did not go along with infant baptism, you were in trouble. A person with Anabaptist leaning were persecuted by the Church of England. Anyway, if you had any, if you just didn't believe that babies should be baptized and become part of this state church, you were in trouble. Now, here's an example of a young lady named Joan Beecher or Bosher of Kent. She was condemned as a heretic by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Cramner, and other church leaders like Bishop Ridley. And she was burned at the stake on April 30th, 1549. Now, the reason I picked her out is because of her testimony to these church leaders as she was about to be burned. She said, I am as true a servant of Christ as any of you, and if you put your poor sister to death, take care lest God should let loose the wolf of Rome on you, and you have to suffer for God too. See, I'm a, I'm a servant of God. If you do this to me, just be careful what God might do to you. <laughs> let loose the wolf of Rome. He's talking about Roman Catholicism, which was known for its persecution. This was somewhat of a prophetic word. Because when, when Edward VI died, he was only 15, became king when he was nine. Mary Tudor, a very strong Catholic, came to the throne. She was called Bloody Mary. You've heard of Bloody Mary, perhaps. She was called Bloody Mary by the Protestants because she had so many Protestant leaders like Cramner and Ridley and 300 others burned at the stake. So here's these guys that had this lady, Christian lady, who didn't believe in infant baptism, burned at the stake. He says, you better be careful what you're doing to your poor sister. It kind of reminds me of what Jesus said when he said, in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So, in England and on the continent, this idolatrous state church system was responsible for the death of hundreds of thousands of people. Idols, idols are no small thing. The Protestant reformers were persecuted and killed by the Catholics when they were in power, and the Catholics were persecuted and killed by the reformers when they were in power, and both the Protestant and Catholics persecuted and killed smaller groups like the Anabaptists and others. Such was a sad situation for hundreds of years, both in Europe and England. 
You know, in all of this, we ought to be thinking about what Jesus told his disciples who thought they should destroy the Samaritans when the Samaritans would not give, give any uh, uh, hospitality to Jesus and his disciples. Let me just read it to you here. <clears throat> they were going through that area and, and the Samaritans wouldn't invite them in. So the disciples said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Consume them? And he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. I think that could be said all through the Middle Ages to this, this system. You do, not, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. What about the New World? You know, over here in America, this land that people fled to in order to escape all this religious persecution. Unfortunately, many of these groups wanted religious freedom for their own brand of Christianity, but were intolerant of dissent. The first encounter between uh, the uh, two European groups, Catholics and Protestants, actually happened down in Florida. Uh, 50 years before the time of the pilgrims, they killed off one another. <laughs> Incredible. <clears throat> Up in New England, Baptists and Quakers and other groups were persecuted in places like Puritan, Massachusetts, and Anglican, Virginia. In fact, nine of the 13 colonies had state-established religions in which there was some form of persecution if you did not at least outwardly conform, comply with the state's religious system. In some of the states, the persecution was simply being denied the right to vote or hold any government office unless you went along with the state religion. But in other states, like Massachusetts, ears were being chopped off. And in the case of four Quakers in Boston, you were put to death for presenting alternative religious views. This is in the colonies. The most extreme example of persecution in the early colonies would probably be the Salem Witch Trials, 1692, which resulted in the execution of 20 people, most of them women. I don't have time to go into that this morning, but as you read the accounts, some of these men and women not only were not witches, they were probably the true Christians in Salem. It's incredible. Well, we need to bring this to a close by drawing some abiding principles from all this. And as I go through these, Probably questions will come to your mind, and we'll have a little time to try to deal with those here in closing. Questions come to my mind, and I don't have the answers for some of them, but we can try to at least start to think about some of these things. Anyway, some abiding principles from all this. One thing I would say that here in the U.S. we should be thankful for the First Amendment to the Constitution, which says Congress shall make no law establishing religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. 
which is basically saying that the government should be impartial in religious matters. Just stay out of it. What it is, it's a repudiation of this church-state system that existed for 15 centuries since the time of Constantine. It's a total repudiation of that whole system. And we ought to be thankful for that. <clears throat> Though America never was a Christian nation, it was a nation influenced by Christian principles. Now, let me just say a few things here. We should not expect or desire America or any other nation state to single out Christianity for support. And we should be very cautious concerning political leaders endorsing Christianity. They may only be endorsing a civil religion, this type of thing that we've been looking at here. As we've seen with Constantine, this endorsement of Christianity by religious people, by political figures, government, can have some very negative, unintended consequences. I would say this, if the rich and the powerful and the prominent people of a society come to true faith in Christ, that's wonderful. But they must come like everybody else else does through the straight gate and the narrow way. Constantine never did that. There was never any real repentance. So be careful about religion being used by political leaders. We need to remember that the idol of religion is often a tool for the powerful to exploit, control, and manipulate the masses. We also need to remember that the only Christian nation recognized in the New Covenant is a non-territorial nation of God's people throughout the world, the church. That's the Christian nation. Let me just show it to you. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. There's the nation that God's concerned about. A holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So as Christians, whether we're from the United States or China or Iraq, our Christian nation is God's people. That's the Christian nation we're concerned about. And our ultimate allegiance and loyalty belongs to Christ and his kingdom, not some earthly power. The gospel always stands against all idolatry, all idolatry, especially the idol of religion. So we must maintain and demonstrate a clear biblical distinction between Christ's spiritual kingdom and the kingdoms of this world. The world cannot understand that distinction. They, can't, they don't understand what real Christianity is. 
That's why they look back at all this stuff that's been done in the name of Christianity and say, what, and say well, see what Christianity... That was not Christianity. But the world can't make the distinction because it's a spiritual distinction. Jesus said it this way, unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't even see what you're talking about when Christians talk about Christianity. Besides that, the ethics of this kingdom, true kingdom of God, are supernatural and do not fit the world's agenda. For instance, God's people reject the idol of power. They just say, I'm not going to go that route. That's not, not for me. They take the low position, the humble position. To seek worldly power is to forfeit the power of God. They realize that. God's people realize that. God's people reject the idol of greed and seek to be a sharing, caring community. God's people reject personal revenge and seek to love their enemies. They reject lording it over others and seek to demonstrate servanthood. This is a different kingdom, you see. We're in a different kingdom. We have to clearly make that distinction whenever we're talking uh, to people about Christianity. God's people reject personal revenge and seek to love their enemies. They reject lording it over others. Others seek to be servants of all. They reject social, racial, and ethnic barriers because in Christ all are one. They reject the idol of institutionalized religion and seek to be led by God's Spirit in accordance with God's Word. In short, they reject the world's ways and accept the way of Christ, the way of the cross, recognizing that they will always be, in some way, in some form, pilgrims and strangers on this earth. With such you find the true church history. That's where true church history church history is written. Though they're not the ones that make the who's who of church history books often. Let me go back to this poem by Tyr Stegan. The last stanza. This is the, the pilgrim song. You see, pilgrim. Pilgrims and strangers. The pilgrim song. song. We follow in his footsteps. What if our feet be torn? Where he has marked the pathway, all hail the briar and thorn. Scarce seen, scarce heard, unreckoned, despised, defamed, unknown, or heard but by our seen, on children, ever on. A.W. Tozer says that in that little line, or heard but by our singing, and it has more of the true spirit of church history than all the large tomes ever written. He said, you just throw out church history books and take that little phrase right there. There's where you're going to find church history. He said, the learned, the learned historians tell of councils and bulls, that is, decrees, 
and religious wars. That's what you find in these history books, all the councils and decrees and religious wars. But in the midst of all the mummery, mummery, that's dead bodies. <laughs> in the midst of all the mummery were a few who saw the eternal city in f full view and managed to almost manage almost to walk on earth as if they had already gone to heaven. These were the joyous ones who got little recognition from the world of institutionalized religion and might have gone altogether unnoticed except for their singing. So he's, he's saying this, this is church history if you want to really follow it down through the ages. So I would say, in conclusion, may we be part of that church history. That's why John says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And I would say especially this idol of religion. So I'll, I'll stop there and just...